Well, once again, welcome to Redeemer Church. I'm Tim Trometer, one of the pastors here of Redeemer, and it's so good to see you this morning. We're one church meeting in two locations, and our mission and vision is to connect people with the love and life of Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. It's why we exist. Today is the last day of our teaching series titled Summer Reading, and to close out our series this morning, we're going to look at a theme, at the theme of the book, The Hidden Option by Jonathan Malm. Um, I know some of you have picked this book up to read it, which is wonderful. And we're going to explore how God gives us his creative hidden option when faced with challenges and struggles in our lives. And as an example of how God does this, we're going to look at an encounter that Jesus had while he was in the temple in Jerusalem as recorded in the Gospel of John this morning. And so let's take a moment to be in prayer together this morning. Will you pray with me? Holy God, as we come into this place and into your presence this day, we ask that you not only fill this physical space with your Holy Spirit, but that you would fill our hearts and our lives as well. Use every part of this experience of worship to connect with us, to grow in us as we seek to encounter you. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son and our Savior, that we pray. And everyone said, Amen. Charles Glass wrote in his book, Brain Drain, The Breakthrough That Will Change Your Life, these words, and I quote, The way I see it, our natural human instinct is to fight or flee that which we perceive to be dangerous. Although this mechanism evolved to protect us, it serves as the single greatest limiting process to our growth. To put this process in perspective and not let it rule my life, I accept the unexpected, expect the unexpected, make the familiar, unfamiliar familiar, make the unknown known, make the uncomfortable comfortable, believe the unbelievable. Our fight or flight response is 100% biology. When we face physical, mental, relational, or even spiritual stress in our lives, our biology takes over. The adrenaline glands start pumping in the adrenaline, and, and we're ready to fight like this. That's how we do it, most of us. Or to flee, to run away. And when we allow our biological response to influence our response to the complicated situation, we often, we often make rash decisions. Stuck between a rock and a hard place, we often can't see clearly enough to find another way. So what do you do when you find yourself with only two bad options? When stuck in a seemingly impossible situation, with only two bad options before him, God gave Jesus a third creative solution to that seemingly impossible problem. And the thing is, is that God does the same thing in our lives. He still does the same thing in our lives today. And to learn how this morning, we're going to turn to the New Testament book of John, and we're, chapter 8, where we're, we find Jesus stuck in this impossible situation. So starting in chapter 8, verse 1, we find this account. 
Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was walking, was back at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery, and they put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him, but Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. There's always a hidden option. That's our first thing, our first point this morning. There's always a hidden option. And to understand the hidden option in this story, we must understand the dynamics of this story. Because there's a lot going on. Jesus is seated, seated in the temple, teaching, which sets the stage for this entire encounter. So he's seated in a position of authority as the temple is the center of not only social life, but of the religious culture of the Jewish faith. Being seated, physically seated in the temple, means that that Jesus assumed the position of authority because in this time period, the teacher sat and the students listened. So for Jesus to be seated is a big deal. So the teacher, so he's assumed this position of the seated posture of the teacher, which is also verified by the scribes and the religious leaders who address him as teacher. What do you say? See, perception is everything in this story. Consider the difference between someone talking about God over at the city park versus someone talking about God from this stage during worship. And that's kind of the difference of Jesus on the hillside and Jesus seated in the temple teaching. Jesus was not only speaking with authority from God, he had assumed a physical position and posture of teaching authority in the temple. And so it's easy to see why the scribes and Pharisees were frustrated. There's this new teacher in town, and he was captivating the hearts and the minds of the people in the temple, and they were losing control. So the temple leaders bring in this woman who was literally caught in the act of adultery. Listen to what Bible scholar Joseph Dongle says about this chance occurrence. Had she been caught by chance, or had the scribes and Pharisees staked out the scene in advance, acting on privileged information? Is it even possible that they had set up the event, supplying the bait and the occasion for her sin as, it, as to be able to confront Jesus with a difficult decision? And where was her partner in sin? The fact that the Pharisees and scribe brought only the woman to Jesus is suspect. Levitical law is quite clear. I remind you of Leviticus 20.10, which states, If a man commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, both the man and the woman who have committed adultery must be put to death. Her partner should have been brought to Jesus too. 
he should have been charged and held to the same standard as the woman. His response, like he was supposed to be executed by stoning as well. Yet, for some reason, only the woman is brought before Jesus with the intent to trap him. But, but truly, what kind of trap was set for Jesus? What would be accomplished by the statement in question, the law of Moses says to stone her? Leviticus 20.10 says, if a man and a woman are in an act of adultery, they must be put to death. But, but what do you say, Jesus? Here's how it breaks down. The religious leaders believed that they had only they had set Jesus up to respond in, in, in only two ways. He only had two choices. Option one, agree with the law of Moses and stone the woman. But how could following the scriptures be a trap? Ah, you're inquisitive like me. How could following the Bible be wrong? Consider for a moment all that Jesus has done up to this point. If Jesus tells the religious leaders to stone the woman, they can accuse him of inconsistency of teaching. By this point in Jesus' ministry, he has, well, he has a well-established reputation of not only socializing with sinners, eating with sinners, but healing them, forgiving their sins, He was renowned for being able to forgive, to heal people. And so if he said, stone her, they could say, now wait a minute, Jesus, you said you could forgive people of their sins. Now what, you can't? Inconsistency of t teaching. Option two, they, Jesus could forgo the law of Moses and he, could say, and he could say, no, get up, you're forgiven, go on your way. In which case, he could be charged for being a lawbreaker. Breaking, disobeying God's word as given through Moses. Thus, the trap was set. And both options were bad. But as we well know, life isn't prone to give us win-win situations, is it? Often when we face complicated situations and problems, we find ourselves falling into survival mode. When, life, when we live life in survival mode, our instincts take over. Our fight or flight kicks in. Our adrenaline starts pumping. Do we stay or do we run? Is this the hill we're going to die on? Or do we concede? And we stop thinking about God's hidden option. Our need for self-preservation takes over. And remember, this is 100% biology. This doesn't really have anything else to do with with anything else but how our body works, our biological response. It is something we must rise above, though. If we, if we are going to see beyond to God's creative hidden option, we have to rise beyond our biology because there is always a hidden, ma hidden option no matter what situation we're living in. See, when we're stuck in survival mode and in reactivity, we lose our ability to see that which is beyond those two options. And so we must intentionally choose to neither fight nor flee, but choose instead to pause and pray. We must choose to seek God's wisdom and His creative solution. Instead of responding to the trap, 
that was set for him, Jesus pushed pause. He tapped the brakes, as it were. And he chose not to respond in the moment, giving him the time he needed to discover what God had in store for the situation. If we want to discover God's hidden option in our lives, we must also take our cue from Christ and and step out of our reactivity and take time to think, to take time to pray, to discern, to, to understand the complexities of what is going on around us. And by taking time, Jesus opened himself to God's leading, and he found the hidden option. They kept demanding the answer, they being the Pharisees and scribes. So he stood up again and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and rode in the dust. And when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with a woman. That brings us to our second point from this text, which is sometimes hidden options can only be found through God. Sometimes the only way we find them is when we open ourselves to God. How many times have you heard someone use a variation of that phrase? All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Right? Politicians, community leaders, fellow Christians, and atheists alike all use this phrase. But all from a position of hypocrisy. And once again, the law of the Old Testament comes into play in this encounter because there are specific Old Testament laws regarding appropriate punishment for those who break their covenantal vows, including, but not limited to, stoning. Just one of many examples is Leviticus 24, which states as an example for the justified punishment of stoning. Leviticus 24, 13 and 14 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Take the blasphemer outside the camp and tell all those who heard the curse to lay their hands on his head Then let the entire community stone him to death. Brutal. By our standards. But Israel was meant to be a holy nation, one set apart, and they took their covenant seriously. This meant living in a different way than the rest of the world, being different than every other community of faith, every other community of non-faith. And what Jesus did was he took the religious regulation of the punishment for the sin and he added to it. He didn't throw it out, disregarding the consequence for human indiscretion. Don't miss that reality in this story. Jesus did not say, stop stoning people. The punishment of stoning for the sin of adultery was still an expectation in Jesus' statement. No, instead, Jesus added a measure of integrity to the accuser and executioner. In essence, Jesus heightened the standard of those who would stand a judgment of others. And Jesus is not giving a blanket statement to the crowd either. He's calling out the religious leaders who brought the woman to Jesus in the first place. 
for sentencing. I hope it's becoming abundantly clear that this whole event and exchange has now shifted and now has more to do with the leaders of the, of the temple than it does with the woman who stands accused of adultery. And once again, Jesus is referring to the law of Moses with his comment of who throws the first stone. Jewish law also states that when a man or woman is found guilty of any sin in the community of faith, that the penal- and the penalty is public execution. Deuteronomy 17.7 says, the witness, the person who saw the indiscretion, the witness, must throw the first stone. And then all the people may join in. And this way you will purge the evil from among you. See, there was a process to how you stone someone. The witness was supposed to cast the first stone. The law required that whoever witnessed a sinful act and the person who, that person who stood as a public wish, witness in the community during that community trial of the people. It was their responsibility to throw the first stone of execution, thereby beginning the process of purifying the community of the impurity among them. And so when Jesus added the requirement that the person who threw the first stone must be free from sin, the focus moved from the woman's sin to the character and sinfulness of the religious leaders. He was calling them out for their sin. The people who witnessed and brought the woman to Jesus for sentencing, the scribes and the Pharisees of the temple. You see, the question was not, does, what does God say about this woman's sin, which is what they posed in the first place. The question now became, are you pure enough? Do you live a life with no blemishes of sin before God to make you capable of casting the witness's stone of execution. And by the way, everyone's watching you. You see, there's a big difference between accusing someone of a sinful behavior, joining a mob of people and throwing stones, and being the one who begins the execution by saying, I'm pure, and I'm going to throw the first stone. We must not forget Jesus' words in Matthew 5.17 that says, don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to fulfill their purpose. The religious leaders were now left with two options. Option one, step forward, claim to be without sin, and throw that first stone. Begin the execution of the woman. But if they did, they would open themselves to public examination and potentially expose any sin that is in their life, which we know there is sin in everyone's life because Paul says all sin and fall short of God's glory. Option two, drop their stones and walk away and admit that they're sinners. Both options have the same outcome, don't they? The religious leaders identify themselves as being sinners before the crowd and before God. And that's the kind of situation that a God-given hidden option creates 
in our lives because it's a Holy Spirit-inspired movement of God drawing us into His path. Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, Neither do I. Go and sin no more. So the woman's accusers leave. But the real question remains, what of, the, what of this woman? What of her? What will, what will Jesus demand from someone who has fallen away from God's plan and path in their life? When we find the hidden option, hidden options offer hope for us and for others. So the question is, what waits for her? What awaits her? Punishment? Forgiveness? What expectation does Jesus have? And when Jesus lived into the hidden option, the woman is able to actually find hope again in her life, and, and really, truly so are we. But hope comes in the grace that God gives us. Understand that Jesus did not approve of the woman's choices. He did not, he did not accept or dismiss her sinful actions just as he did not remove the earthly consequences for the sinful action. Jesus' instructions were still to stone her. He just added that, the only, that only someone without sin had the right to bear witness and cast the first stone of execution. Lucky for her, the only person without sin in that crowd was Jesus himself. Jesus was and is that person. And when given the choice, Jesus is the only one who could throw that first stone. And he chose mercy instead of invoking justice. Justice is getting what you deserve. Justice in this situation would have been being executed. For justice to be served, the woman should have died and the man who she had an affair with. But mercy is not getting what you deserve. And grace is getting what you don't deserve. Stoning the woman was justice. But Jesus gave mercy when he said, neither do I. I'm giving you mercy. I am not going to stone you either, even though I can. Because by the new law, the new, covenant, the new, the new process that Jesus sets as a standard, he could throw the first stone as one without sin except he wasn't there to witness it. He gave her grace, too, as he sent her away with a clean slate, forgiven. Go and sin no more. These words impart an expectation that she would stop her life of sin, and Jesus was clear. Her life of sin was to stop then and there. She was expected to never commit adultery again. See, repentance is that church word we use for, for what that means, and this is what it means, truly what it means to receive mercy and grace from God. Yes, Jesus' death on the cross frees us from the chains, the shackles of sin, but, but unless we turn away from the action, the sinful acts, and choose to never live in that same way again, grace and forgiveness are actually kind of meaningless. Cheap grace is what it's called. 
We act as though we can do anything we want, and we, if we just say, I'm sorry, and we expect to be forgiven later. It's as though there was no price for grace, as though, as though grace is cheap. Forgiveness is cheap. The actions of her past no longer condemned the woman, but she would be, but she would be condemned again. She would be condemned again if she went back to her old ways. And this is the real hope that Jesus offered the woman. Literally, she was trapped by the religious leaders. Her mortal life was in their hands, but spiritually she was trapped by her sin. Paradise had been lost because of the brokenness that sin had caused in her life. But Jesus not only saved her physical life when he was standing there, he gave her the option of living out her life free from the spiritual chains that bound her from sin. And the hidden option led to new life and renewed hope that was not present in the first two options that Jesus had. That hope was not there. And at some point in our lives, we all feel the weight of what limited options do to us, the burden. It feels as though there's no way out of some situations. And it's in these moments that we must like Jesus, seek the hidden option to find the other way or the third way, the, the new option. And there's always a hidden option. And when we find it, we will discover that God uses it to draw us into God's path and to bring hope to our lives and to the lives of other people. And so if you find yourself today in this situation between two options and you feel as though the walls are just closing in around you, know that God has a hidden option for you. It's time to move beyond fight and flight, beyond reactivity. And to help us this morning, we're going to walk through five phases to help us find God's hidden option in our lives. And these come from John Malm's book, The Hidden Option. And the first is to believe that there is a hidden option. Believe there is a hidden option. If you don't believe that there is another option available to you, you will not invest the time searching for it. There's always a hidden option. The place we must all start is believing that God has a hidden option in our situation that we are meant to find. There's always a hidden option. Number two is to take the obvious options off the table. Bad options will never give you the outcome you desire. If the options aren't good enough, you take them off the table. And this will not only clear your mind, but by clearing your mind, it allows your mind to actually think about what those new options could be, to discover those options, those new possibilities. If all you have is bad options, cross them off and accept the reality that you really have no options, no possibilities. So start with a clean slate. Take the obvious options off the table. Third, ask God for the hidden option. You knew I was going to say it, right? Pray. It had to be in there somewhere. Pray. You knew it was coming. There is power in prayer. There's great power in prayer. But we need to make sure that we're praying for the right things. We need to stop asking God to fix everything for us. And instead, we need to stop asking and praying that God would make a bad option good as well. God, this is a horrible situation. Just make this bad thing good. Uh, a bad thing's a bad thing, no matter how you spin it. 
We don't need clarity either from God between two bad options. If they're both bad options, they're both bad options. What we need is that hidden option. So instead, we need to pray that God would open our minds to the hidden option that we don't see yet. So we need to ask God to show us his creative option for wisdom, ask for vision, ask for the hidden option. Number four is start asking perspective questions. As frustrating as it can be, frequently God allows the answer to remain hidden until we discover it. And this means we have to switch from like a two-dimensional view to a three-dimensional view of our situation. And we need to gain a deeper understanding of the reality of what's going on. Just like the trap that was set for Jesus with the woman, there was, it was deeply embedded into Hebrew law. Both in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, we too must understand the depth and complexity of the situation if we're going to understand God's hidden option. So we need to ask questions, questions like, what's the problem behind the problem? If we're going to change one external variable that is contributing to the problem, what would it be and what would happen? Where is God limiting you? Have you ever asked that? Where is God stopping you from progressing? And have you ever considered why God might be limiting you in a specific way? Because God sometimes limits our progress for a very specific reason. Start asking perspective questions to broaden our understanding of the situation, to find the hidden option. And number five, we have to do the hard work. Finding the God-given hidden option requires doing the hard work of prayer, discernment, searching the scriptures, planning, and, and, and so much more. It'll take time. It takes hard work. But there's always a hidden option. There's always another way. And if we, are, if we are to find God's hidden option, we must be willing to put in the time to work for it. Jesus knelt in the ground and drew in the sand while the Pharisees and scribes were yelling at him. Learning these five phrases, and if we learn these five phrases, we can start to live them out in our lives as we approach challenging situations. And as you do, you're going to find yourself drawn into God's path and plan in your life. And hope will fill your life in a new way in the lives of the people around you. Not only in new ways, but in unique ways, in unexpected ways, in ways that you didn't imagine or see coming. Because there's always a hidden option. Let's pray. As we face the challenges of our lives, Lord, help us to step away from our natural response to fight or flee and instead take the time, as Jesus did, to pause and to seek your guidance. Open our eyes to the hidden option that you place before us so that we can display your grace to the world just as your son Jesus the Christ did. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.